Hello, everyone. I'm Al Daldegan, creator and producer of the Leaders, Innovators, and Big Ideas podcast, supported by Rainforest Alberta. This podcast showcases the people who are working to improve Alberta's innovation ecosystem. The host for this episode is Patrick Wu. Patrick is a freelance graphic designer, UX designer, and marketing consultant with a background in biotechnology and life sciences commercialization. His career has taken him across a wide range of areas, from sales and marketing, government advocacy, ecosystem development, and now design. Since 2016, he has since been an active member of the Rainforest community, advocating for technology innovation and life sciences in Alberta. And on this episode, Patrick sits down with Neil Okikulu. Take it away, Patrick. All right. Thank you, Al. So hello again. Uh, Welcome back to the Leaders, Innovators and Big Ideas podcast. It's a pleasure to be back here today with uh, Neil Okikulu. Did I manage to get that right? Yeah, that was perfect. Thank you. <laughs> well, so so glad to uh, have you on the show today, Neil, and thank you uh, so much for spending some time today to join us. Um, we we met back um, at various startup Calgary events, right? You you volunteered for a bit there. Oh yeah, yeah, I volunteered for a couple of years, and I, I'm still officially, you know, signed up there. It's just that because of you know the whole lockdown situation, so you know I haven't gone to any events yet. But you know, I'm still repping startup YYC. You know, I have the shirt. Right here, <laughs> the official shirt. So yeah, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. For the for the uh, for the podcast listeners, we have like the, the classic um, startup Calgary shirt, which is you know a beautiful design. I really do love that shirt uh, quite a bit. Um, but you know, hopefully, when we when we start kind of getting some in person events again, um, to whatever relative safety level we can, we'll start seeing uh, more of these kinds of things happen, and you'll be you'll be around again. Eh? Oh yeah, yeah. And also, I think uh, with the experience I've gained, I'll be able to help people more. Because I remember before, you know, during the events, I was more like the like helping organize stuff, you know, put things in the correct place. But now I can actually give people, I'll say, proper, proper advice on, you know, on a startup and stuff. So I'm actually really excited for it to come back. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we will we will talk about this new startup of yours in, in a little bit. But I think what I what I wanted to do first is kind of ask you, like, uh, how how did you how did you get here? What were what was Neil like as a child and how how did he get interested in in innovation and startups. So I'll say, you know, Neil was a very good child. And because he was very good, his parents bought him a, a science book for Christmas. And I think uh, during that time, you know, I was, I was about seven years old. And, you know, when you, re- when you receive a book, you're like, oh no, I wanted a video game. But uh, I think my parents were like, you know, they're smart. So they know me more than I knew myself at that time. So I said, okay, let me give the book a chance. I picked it up. I opened the book and I fell in love. It was a, it was a science book, you know, basic science, all the like, you know, here's what the cell looks like. Here's what the rocket is, you know, here's magnets and all that cool stuff. And, and after that, like I just fell in love with science because to me it's represented, you know, just uh, I'll say the infinite frontier of like being a human being because, you know, when it comes to science, there's really no end to it because every discovery you make, every discovery someone else makes actually leads to more discoveries and it's, you know it's just people just keeping on building and building and building and so that is why like i really love about science i funny thing about that book you know i still have that book till today like the book is 20 years old now <laughs> and i still have it in my library i still open it from time to time and look through because you know it's 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 good inspiration for me like i love that book 
It's it's funny that you mentioned that because I have like I don't know if you remember like scholastic book orders where like in elementary school you would like have this little brochure and you'd check check the boxes of all the books that you want to buy and then you go to your parents and they'll tell you which ones they can actually afford. Um and then like I think the the first like kind of science book was like the um illustrated um illustrated solar system or like a, a description of all the planets in the solar system including pluto and so in my in my heart pluto is always a planet uh, many people will disagree and I, I don't really necessarily care about how people reclassify because that is what that book tells me i still have it on my shelf and i do not have the heart to to donate it to the library because it that 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 is my very first science book and i totally understand that you know that has a lot of sentimental value right yeah it's you know the beginning of the journey and like you always want to remember where you came from because you know, as time goes on, as you face, you know, different trials and tribulations, you want to like reset to uh, to point zero and say, okay, you know, why did I get into this? Oh, because of this. And, you know, it helps you guide yourself, I'll say. So I, I definitely understand where you're coming from in terms of like sentimental nostalgia. I know, you know, it, they are good books, you know, they're they, they are good read even till today with the internet, you know, you still open it and it has good pictures, good info. And you're like, oh, wow. Like I remember reading this. Yeah, it's a good book. Oh yeah, absolutely. So did you did you end up going and like doing continuing science in in school? Did you go to university for a science degree of some sort? Yes. So I'll, I'll say after that, during my like junior high and high school, I tended to take the uh, scientific courses. I'll say except biology because I wasn't good at drawing cells, and that was a requirement. You had to draw like that beautiful, you know, the animal cell and the plant cell, and, and I couldn't do that. So I focused more on chemistry and physics, and. Also on computers because, you know, I was good at using computers. So I said, you know, let me see what coding is about. And funny thing is I actually started coding very late compared to most people. I'll say my first piece of code I wrote, I was about 15 years old. At least in that time, because nowadays I see kids on the internet, you know, they're eight years old and, you know, they're in kindergarten and these kids are already like doing simple programs. So for me, <laughs> it seemed a little bit late. Like I started coding in high school. <laughs> oh man, if, if, that, if that was late, then I'm like, I was like a dinosaur before I started coding. <laughs> yeah. But around that time, you know, I got to know what coding was. At first it was hard, but once I saw like, you know, once you start reading on your own, you know, seeing the potential, I was like, oh, wow, you know, this is, this is cool. You know, I can make my own stuff. You know, you can make the computer do what you want it to do. And, and that was fun. So I was after our univer- um, high school, university, I, I applied for two, you know, UFC. So you get to pick two, two degrees. The first one was computer engineering and the second one was computer science. And, you know, they both have computer in it, but they're like very different things, like totally different. So I go in for comp sci, like that's the story from there. You know, I just learned as much as I could, you know, all the math behind uh, all the algorithms, you know, all the, like, I'll say, code in between, like, like what do you call it? the embedded code? I learned all that cool stuff. And I just tried to keep learning and learning and learning, like getting everything I could, because the more you know, the easier things are for you, I'll say, in tech. You know, the more, like, strategies you know, because it's the difference between someone spending a month to get something running and someone just spending, like, a couple hours to get something running. So that's what, like, that was my process during that time, was just to learn as much as I could. And yeah, that was it. Like my university course, like, so from high school all the way to university was just me staring at the computer screen. You know, it's, 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 it's no wonder I'm wearing glasses right now. <laughs> I mean, I mean, there, there's a reason why my vision failed so, so early on for similar reasons. But um, I, I, if I remember correctly, you also were at Circle Cardiovascular Imaging for a little while too, weren't you? And what were, what were you doing there? So Circle Cardiovascular, that was me doing, I was doing web software for uh for their main cardiovascular product. So what Circle did was they made a aftermarket software for MRI machines. 
you know, city machines. And the reason they made that sofa was because the one that came with the machines wasn't as good, you know. The, the machine manufacturers focused on, you know, the hardware itself. Like they made beautiful hardware. The hardware worked, you know, very intricate, very well done. So the, so the software to those manufacturers was a second thought. So what Circle did was they came in and started writing all kinds of, you know, aftermarket post-processing software that helped benefit the manufacturer's software. So for example, like the basic software on an MRI machine would show you, you know, just like all the slices of your heart. So it'll show you different pictures of your heart. But with Circle software, it would like, we'd be able to create, for example, a 3D image from that 2D image, or we'd be able to detect, you know, if your heart wasn't beating properly in sequence, you know, like an arrhythmia with the software. So that's why I did at that time. I was mainly focused on the web product because, you know, web is big. It, like, and, and at that time when I started Circle, it was getting bigger. So they wanted to focus on more of a web-based, cloud-based infrastructure because the regular software was very intensive, you know. You needed like a gaming laptop or like a proper, proper workstation with a GPU to run. So they were like, you know what, can we take this stuff to the cloud, you know, harness all that cloud stuff. So I did a lot of web development there. I was one of like, you know, a very specific team of web people. And we just tried to like, you know, we did a bunch of experiments, you know, we did a bunch of like uh, talks, a bunch of research into things like, you know, how this actually work with patient data and stuff like that. So that's why I was mostly taking care of this. So just web development on the, you know, medical products. <laughs> so did was this your kind of first exposure to um, like artificial intelligence then? Because I remember that Circle has a bit of like an AI uh, play in in how they like annotate the heart slices as they're going through it. But was that was that what you were working on, or was it mostly just the web web dev stuff? I worked partially with that because my team had to integrate the AI into the product. And yes, as you said, that was like my one of the. I'll say first realistic experiences with AI I had because, you know, most AI, you know, is like, you know, it's all about cats. So, you know, what cat is this? What cat is that? So where you now compare to what people are actually doing, like, for example, based on this image, does this person have a heart injury? And then, have, and then the AI has to decide with, you know, like 99.9% accuracy, you know, because of regulations that if this is true or not. So that experience working with those AI guys actually taught me, you know, lots of like validation techniques lots of testing techniques, you know, like the actual process of how you go from just a bunch of heart pictures and then you go into like an inference. So for example, with the doctor, they have a thousand images. How do I draw a bunch of contours on a thousand images? You know, that, that'll take too long. So like with the uh, AI, we had stuff that could draw contours for you. You know, we had stuff that could, uh, again, try and help you. Like we didn't predict because prediction is a very finicky area. We had stuff that could, you know, kind of guide you into the right direction. So if, so if there was an injury, it would say, hey, you know, check out, you know, I, I noticed something here. And then the doctor will come and say, okay, maybe there's an injury here or not. So, yeah, that was like the first taste of realistic AI I got. And also that was like when I saw how AI could actually impact the world and impact people. Because in medical imaging, you have very few example sets, very few examples. And we were able to get a lot of, a lot of, I'll say, traction with those few example sets. So, you know, in my mind, I started imagining Imagine if you had massive data sets and stuff like that. What other things could you do? I, I guess it's hard to get your hands on like large training sets of medical data because of privacy uh, reasons, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Privacy is, is the biggest thing that you had to deal with privacy regulations. Because as you know, like I'll give an example. I believe it's about $300. If like if a record gets leaked or if you have a set of records leaked, it's three, like the fine is about $300 per record. So Let's say, it, you know, a million records get, get leaked. 
you're on the hook for 300 mil. And also your company is basically done because, you know, the regulators not give you back any of the licenses or allowances they gave you before and you're done. So yeah, getting that information was very difficult. You have to talk to a lot of hospitals. You have to get them to trust you. And then when they give you the information, because these hospitals too, they know their data is valuable and a whole bunch of people are, you know, trying to, you know, warm them up saying, hey, you know, give me your data, I'll give you this. So it was very difficult to acquire. But luckily for us, we had a good AI team, a good AI manager who had, you know, good contacts in the industry. And when he spoke to people who was able to actually get, you know, from the United Kingdom, from China, from Canada, from the US, from all over the world. So we had various, you know, annotated, which was the good part, because the doctors actually properly filled out all that information for us, which helped a lot in terms of also being able to go to market very quickly. Well, I mean, the training data can only be as good as how, like the quality of the data that you put into it, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, garbage in, garbage out. So with us, we tried our best to get high quality stuff. You know, if, if it's not up to snuff, like it's better you don't use it at all. Like you can't be doing half measures, especially with medical medical software. So it was always better for us that, you know, Better for us to have a hundred good images than a thousand okay images. So that's the kind of mentality we took there. Um, so, you know, fast forward out of that, you are now doing something different. What are you up to now? Oh, so actually like a hard left turn. So right now I'm in, you know, consumer uh, IoT cybersecurity. And the reason why, <laughs> oh yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's a mouthful and it's very different. <laughs> well, I mean, no, it's, it's more just like, that's quite the pivot that to make out of, um, out of health tech, right? Yes. I think for me it was, uh, it was more of, you know, during my career, I was looking at what kinds of things to, you know, change into. And as you said, with the AI, you know, I saw the potential on, about AI. So I started thinking about how AI could apply to things like robotics, because, you know, in my free time, I'd come back from work, I had a bunch of robots at home, you know, like proper, like mini robots with graphics cards, you know, embedded Linux, all that cool stuff. So I used to play around with them. I'd put like uh, a bunch of, uh, I'll call them mini AIs, you know, for like guidance or obstacle avoidance, that kind of stuff. So I was thinking to myself, if I can get this AI is very complex, you know, what can I do with this? You know, can you take this from a tiny baby robot with two wheels to like a car? Can you take this to like, you know, a delivery drone? So that's how I started thinking about it. And the more I did research into that, you know, the more I started to realize that these hardware devices were very, very insecure. And me, I'm a very, like, I don't say paranoid, I'm a very cautious guy when it comes to computing hardware. So I was like, wait a minute, you know, if I can't make this secure, then this is a no-go for me. So what I did was I researched, 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 and I found out that there was really no solution, especially on the consumer side. And there was also a very big drive for getting uh, getting IoT devices into people's homes, you know, the whole smart home trend. So I was like, okay, you know, maybe this is a good way to enter and start, in, you know, start protecting devices. Interesting. And so what's the what's the company called? It's called Simeus. So Simeus Technologies, Inc. You know, if you go on Google, you just type in Simeus.ai and, you know, you get there. So what what's kind of the, um, like, the big challenge that you're you're facing right now with uh, with what you're doing? So funny enough, you know, when it comes to uh, cybersecurity, I'll say enterprises have it very good because everybody focuses on the enterprise, you know. Like, if you go out there right now, there are, there are thousands of tools ready for enterprises to protect themselves, you know, AI-based tools, uh, tools that are targeted towards like analysts, all that cool stuff. But when you now switch over to the consumer side, there's there's nothing. <laughs> it's just like, it's just empty. I'll say at best you have antiviruses. Also, a lot of antivirus companies try to tackle this problem. You know, they made routers which could, you know, detect threats and stuff. But those things, they only work because threats are not like static. Threats evolve. So 
those really work. So when we entered the market, I'll say about uh, eight months ago, we found out that you know, it was just a big hole. So we're like, okay, this is this is a good place for us to start because a lot of companies want to push robotic hardware, IoT hardware into the consumer space. However, there's no security for it. And security is like one of those things you need first before the devices are out there. You know, you can't have a bunch of like Roombas or cameras in people's houses that are all open to the internet. And then later on you say, hmm, okay, maybe I just think about security. So what we did was, okay, we started like, uh, you know, talking to people, first of all, seeing like for regular people, you know, tell me your problems, tell me what you think. We found groups of people who knew about, you know, open devices as such. But what really shocked us was the fact that other consumers that had that had devices in their home, they didn't even know about the vulnerabilities to those devices. So for them, it was just tee I can see my my house from my phone. I'm all good to go. But then when you say, hold on a minute, someone else can also see your house <laughs> from their phone. They're like, wait, what? You know, so that has been our big, I'll say big drive and big push is education with the consumer. Like we've spent a lot of time, like, you know, protecting them is not hard. You know, we, we've built the tools, the tools are out there. What is hard is like getting the people to use the tools, you know, getting the people to see the value in the tools because they don't understand like, you know, vulnerabilities or that kind of stuff. So you need to teach them about those kind of things. Right. So what, why, why do you think um, no one's really done this yet before? Like considering, you know, I've had, I don't want to actually say the name. I have these like, you know, home speakers, smart speakers, and I don't want to accidentally activate them by accident while I'm like, while I'm recording. Uh, but, you know, I, I got them, one of them was for free because Google gave them away to me. But the thing is, is that like, you, you'd think that after this amount of time of people getting used to IoT devices in their homes, someone would have come to say like, hey, we're, we offer security. But why do you think there's still such a lo- like a large gap in the market for that? I think it's because of the way like traditional cybersecurity companies operate. So I'll say for the most part, almost all of them are B2B companies. And the ones that you know still serve people are kind of like offshoots from that B2B if you know what I mean. So these companies, like, they're they're, they're built from the ground up to focus on, you know, big deals with a few companies. So they have that infrastructure there. You know, they spend time networking with bosses of companies. They spend time talking to people who understand the problem, you know. Like, if you're dealing with, like, a corporation, you know, you can be sure they have IT personnel who understand what the vulnerability is, who understand, like, you know, what intrusion detection can cost, all that stuff. But when it comes to people, you know, these guys can't, they don't have the infrastructure for them because people are like many people are like you know like i'll call it like a shallow pond versus a deep pool so the companies are very deep and there are few of them however the people are very many but those people are not that deep in terms of things like revenue in terms of things like knowledge so i think for them the problem was going after people will be too costly and too much of like an overhaul for these companies so they've just left them in the dark. And also, another thing is, like with government regulations and such, most regulations focus on, you know, B2B stuff. When a company gets hacked, when an insurance company gets hacked, the government comes in and makes regulations only for corporations. You know, On the people's side, you know, nobody's complaining, you know, for the most part. Nobody's talking because they don't know they have these problems. Only like after a year, does somebody know, oh, wait a minute, how come my camera is on 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and is using like 10 gigs of data, you know, every day, you know, what's going on? And so, like, with with the whole, uh, I'll say, with the whole industry, like, the regular people have a problem they don't know they have. And so, from what I see, like, the large companies don't see that as, like, a very big, uh, a very big market. So, I think for them, it's just more 
it's easier and it's more profitable for them to focus directly on their regular B2B industry and, and you know, leave the B2C to, you know, to its fate, unfortunately. And, and, so no, and so no one just, you know, wanted to kind of rehaul or rejig their entire business model to suddenly become a B2C company instead of a B2B company, right? Is, is that what I'm getting from this? Yes. Yeah. That's what I'll say. That's, that's what I'll say from what I've seen because- for B two B, like as a, like if I was going to give you like a B two B stack, it's it's easy to get, you know, customers. You know, you, you like you call a bunch of people, you get one meeting, you convince the person, and that one meeting is ju- like justifies the whole cost of contacting all those other people because you know it's like B two B is big deals over a long period of time, so that big chunk of money is justified. When you compare that to like the consumer aspect, you know, consumers are very uh, linear in terms of revenue. Like you're not going to get a million dollars. You know, from one 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 consumer, you have to get like a hundred thousand people to get that kind of revenue. So, you know, I'll say that they don't have the infrastructure ready, and even if they did, it'll still take them a long time. Like, I, I believe, like if a company wanted to pivot to the B two B, sorry, B two C side, it will take them about one to three years to to fully commit to that push, and it will be a lot of money, and they'll have to absorb losses during that transition period. And, and, and like you know, I don't believe that investors or the upper management is ready to absorb that loss because. Like why why go after this new thing that may work when you have something that already works? You know what I mean. So is is that kind of the model that you're working on now? Then is that you're is it like a subscription model for each consumer, or is it like a, a one time fee for particular things? So we do a subscription model, and and the reason we do that is you know is is just so we can give people continuous protection. I think with one time fees, you know, it's always nice when you pay once because like it's off your mind, but. You have to think about it in terms of like threats. You know, threats are always evolving. Therefore, the company that is protecting you must evolve too. So it's better for you to be able to pay continuously and fund that company so that that company can continuously invest in the technology so that, you know, any threat that comes about, they can handle it. I think some companies tried to do the one-time price thing with hardware or protection for people, but it didn't work out because of the cost. You know, new threats come out and the the old hardware you paid 200 bucks for that's two years old. The company's like, this is this is making a loss for us. Let's just stop. So yeah, I think, yeah, with the B2B, sorry, with the B2C model, we focus, you know, on that monthly figure. And and it also gives people an excuse to try us, you know. Like, it's always easier to convince someone to part with $10, $15 than it is for them to part with, you know, $300 in a year or something like that. So that's why we focus on that kind of like scalable pricing model. And you may have already touched on this, but I just, I may have missed it. But like, what what do I get as a consumer then? Is it like an app that I download? Is it like a, an extra thing that I'm, I'm supposed to like attach to my router? Or how how does this add extra protection to me as a consumer. So everything is done from the cloud. So one thing we tried to do was make it simple. You know, people love simple. Security is, I'll say, is a very tedious affair. It's very boring too. So you don't want people to have to actively go and do things to get secure because for them, they'll just be like, you know what? I'm, you know, I, like I just came back from work. I'm tired. Leave me alone. So we, tr- we, we did everything we could to make everything cloud-based. So what you do is you log in. We get your IP address. You know, you, like you set up the IP address. And then we start doing various things. Like, for example, we check and make sure that all your account credentials haven't been leaked online. Like, you know, we do that check continuously. Because one thing that uh, people who hack smart devices, one thing they love doing is taking credentials that you use for, like, you know, for one account and applying it to the other account. Because people tend to use the same credentials all over because it's easier that way. So we try and look for breaches and tell people, hey, you've been breached. Make sure you change your password because this is a you know, is a threat to your IoT device. Another thing we do is that we we do lots of tests that simulate hacks. 
And the reason we do that is because we want to give people a realistic uh, appraisal of what their devices are, essentially. We want to tell you, like, okay, you know, if a hacker with high skill hacked a device, this is, you know, this is what will happen to you. Like, or if a hacker with low skill hacked a device, you know, this is how you would fare. And we believe, and, and that's what we started from, because that is like the awareness stage. Because right now it's all about awareness, you know, getting people to that mindset of, hey, wait a minute, this device is insecure. What can I do to fix it? And, you know, similar service tells you things you can do to fix it too. But yeah. So it's not like live monitoring of data coming in and out of your IoT device. It's more just like reporting if there are breaches and you let in like alerting people, like, alerting people if there was like a, if something's been compromised, or if there's been a breach. Is that the idea? Yes. Yeah, that's one part. Yeah, we try and do like the pen testing method because for us, like we don't want you to get to the point where, you know, the like a breach is happening live. We want to help you prevent those things because it tends to be very difficult for a regular person, especially and with IoT devices. It's very difficult for a regular person to actually like deal with these threats as they happen. Because what can you do? You know, maybe you turn off your device, but who knows if you know, a piece of malware has been installed already on the device, or who knows if this thing has already spread into your network on your, like your phone, your camera, your plugs and all that stuff. So what we do at Simeos is that we try and preempt everything. So we come in, we scan it and say, okay, your device is vulnerable to like, uh, let's say pivoting, or let's say, okay, your, like your router is, has default credentials. So someone can use, you know, the credential list online to hack it. And, you know, game over for you. So fix this now before someone does it. So we're trying to take that preventative aspect because it's a lot like it's a lot cheaper and it also helps the people because when someone sees a breach live, you know, they tend to panic. And I went and you know that's the worst thing you want to have. Panicking, oh my God, what do I do? What do I do? You make a mistake, you know, maybe some ransomware or something, and then your whole computer is gone. So when you do things before they happen, you are calm. You're like, oh, oh wonderful. I found this out before I was hacked through it. Let me fix it now. You know, let me get back to my day. So that's like the kind of model why is it now. Okay, that's that's really interesting. So I guess maybe the next question I, I think I like I certainly will have is like what what devices are the most problematic or which ones are the the ones that I should keep my eye on? Which one should I like actually just chuck into the bin and like keep away forever? Is the smart cameras. <laughs> yeah, that is those ones I don't have smart cameras in my home because of that. <laughs> when you actually learn how vulnerable these devices can be. It's scary. Like I'll give an example. There are actually like search engines where you can just basically search for open cameras all around the world. And without any hacking skill at all, you can just log into those camera feeds and just watch everything live. Yeah. That's how dire it is. So for me, you know, the first of the smart cameras, because people can watch you, they can watch your home and everything. Like I'll, I'll give an example. We spoke to a parent who was actually hacked through a smart camera. And, you know, it's one of these fancy smart cameras that has, like, the mic and the speakers. So what the hackers did is that they were watching her and then they started talking to her and insulted her in her home. And, and it was very surreal because, yeah, yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> because what can you do in that situation when you start hearing voices, you know, talking to your children, talking to you? And you're like, you know, where is this thing coming from? Because to you, a smart camera is just this dumb device that records stuff. You know, you do expect, you know, people to be able to get into it and watch you throughout. So... I'll say be very careful when you're installing the smart camera. You know, at least put them outside your home for a security camera. That's okay, but be very wary putting one of those like devices that can watch you inside your house. 
I mean, I wouldn't have one. <laughs> so I'll say you know, be very careful. <laughs> so I mean, like now, now for the few people possibly in the audience who are saying, "Oh God, I have a, I have a smart camera inside." Then what, what do I do with it? How do I make sure that that's been like protected? So the first thing I'll do is you know check your account for any breach. So the, like the account you use for the smart camera, because a lot of smart camera companies, what they do is that they upload your data to the cloud, and then you can view the data in the cloud. So what you should do is look at that cloud account you have. And make very sure that you're using unique credentials for that. You know, make sure that first of all, you're not sharing those credentials. And second of all, you should try and monitor like uh, I'll say bandwidth. A lot of uh, a lot of ISPs tend to, I'll say, you know, help you show you what bandwidth is going on through like through your router. You can see what devices are using a lot of bandwidth. If you see your camera that is, you know, meant to come on and turn off, if you see that camera is using like tons of bandwidth and it appears not to be doing anything, you should be very be very wary. Yeah, because, you know, that's like a telltale sign. And the third thing I'll say is, if you have a camera in your home, let's say for like uh, those voiceover IP or like uh, meetings, you know, people like to use those cameras for meetings and stuff. Always get the camera cover. Get that cover and always, you know, make sure it's closed until you want to open it. Or if you want to be very safe, unplug it until you need it. And when you don't need it, unplug it again. You know, that's what I do. All, All cameras in my home are covered. Like my laptop camera is gone. You know, all my like phone camera is covered. If I want to talk to someone by video cam, I have my USB camera that I can plug in and unplug. <laughs> so that's what, you know, like you should be very conscious about these kind of things. I mean, like I in, in university, I was the crazy person who had like a little sticky note over my laptop web camera, but who's laughing now? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you're not crazy. You are the, you know, inside form because I have duct tape over my cameras. All of them are duct taped. And I have my little USB camera, which I can unplug. So no, especially because of what, I don't know if you heard what happened recently with the Pegasus project. So it was a company that was actually installing spyware, you know, for a fee. So, you know, like that, like they're a legit company. You go to them and say, okay, I want to access this person's device and they'll just access it for you. And you can, and you can just get everything they have. So all their emails, all their video feeds, audio feeds, text messages, you can get all that stuff. So when you say things like, covering a camera i say good you know like let me show you my phone my phone has you know the beautiful <laughs> the yellow sticky note of truth on it and i always make sure that it's, it's, it's just a, it's just a little piece of sticky note on top of your phone camera isn't it yep but this is like safety yeah like i put this here and i always make sure my camera is face down because you know, the back is open so my phone is always face down and sometimes i just leave my phone in different room because you can't be too safe you know this is not paranoia anymore it's true like yeah for those of you listening look up pegasus it's crazy what they did but it actually happened, you know, this is like, you know, Mission Impossible kind of stuff, but, you know, they did it and they were just doing it for the past, I'll say two, three years and nobody knew anything until, until two days ago. <laughs> so it's, it's insane. Yeah. Though, though I must say the, the little yellow sticky note actually is a nice color contrast to the black screen. It, it's actually, it's actually very, it's actually very stylish this way, right? Thank you. Yeah. You know, it makes you know where your camera is so you can, you know, put your hand over it when things are happening. Well, I mean, I, I think this is just a, a good reminder for all of us that, you know, there's lots of there's lots of things in our home that are connected to the Internet that, you know, you, you got to be aware of what they're doing with with your Internet. And maybe maybe then it's actually a good idea that I didn't get like a, a smart security camera for my for my outside. And maybe I'll just find one that like just routes directly into a, a video recorder locally and then just be and just be done with that. You know, dumb devices are underrated, yeah. And I mean, like, no smart fridges in your house, I assume, right? If if it can be done by a dumb device, it's dumb. You know, smart fridges, smart TVs, smart bulbs, no. I have the smartphone because, you know, unfortunately, 
my you know flip phones can't get apps so the smartphone is there but everything else is dumb well, I mean, one, one, one day we might, we might get a flip smartphone again. Who, who knows? But I, I do miss the flip phones quite a bit. Well, but this, this has been a very fascinating conversation, but I mean, like now, now that we've kind of brought, brought a little bit of a couple of examples of, you know, where, where we would want to learn more about this, how do people find you then? Oh, so first of all, you know, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook. It's just, you know, go, go there and type in Simeos AI and you'll see our stuff. We, we tend to make you know, like information, very simple. We have like a ton of infographics that explain lots of complex concepts. And, you know, we're trying to simplify it. Like, for example, you know, cryptocurrency jacking, we've simplified that, you know, malware, where does it come from? We simplified that. So for those of you who don't even know about computing, like, you know, network security or cybersecurity is no more like the realm of, I'll say, nerds, you know, like, like it's not that realm anymore. It's for everybody now. Everything is going online. And so as a regular person, you you have to know about these things. It's like, it's like regular security, you know. You don't leave it up to the police. You say, okay, I'll lock my doors. Great. Now you have to lock your cyber doors. So yeah, find me on Google. Uh, sorry, find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And yeah, all our stuff is there, Simeos AI. And you can also go to the website too. We have a ton of blogs, you know, very interesting blogs, you know, things that you didn't think were possible. We talk about in the hacking sphere. Yeah, I think I think this is I think this is you know long overdue. We, we you know we teach we teach kids how to just like safely go on the internet and browse things online, but that's like you know act, the active part of the internet. But then all these other things that are sitting in my home right now, the passive parts of the internet. Um, maybe it's time for us to start really paying attention to what those guys do too when we're when we're not looking at them, right? I think that like what you just said is like a great terminology: active versus passive. You know, when we go on the computer, that's an active device. So we like, you know, we know what's going on in the computer. But when we have all these sensors, all these cameras, all these things that don't look like they're connected, you know, these passive recording devices, you tend to just offload them. So I, I definitely agree that it's time for people to get, you know, get active in monitoring your passive devices as well. So, you know, you need to, like you need to, you know, times are changing <laughs> very quickly. Well, th- this is a, this is a great PSA to uh, to give out to people, right? Well, um, is there is there anything else like before we before we uh, kind of wrap up for uh, this conversation? Is there anything else that you think we should have touched on that I didn't get around to? Like, what's been really burning at you, and you're like, I really need to tell everyone about this. <laughs> I'll say for me it was Pegasus. You know, I'm glad I was able to talk about it because uh, it's it's one of those kind of topics that stays in the tech sphere. It doesn't get disseminated down to regular people. So you know, obviously, people who are in tech, people who own these tech companies, they know they know about Pegasus now. But regular people to them, when they hear Pegasus, like, you know, you know, oh my God, you know, like a unicorn, what does that mean? So yeah, I think, uh, yeah, but I hope I didn't scare people too much. Like the reason I always talk in very bluntly and I always bring these very visceral examples is because I've, I find that is the best way to get people to do something. You know, when you tell someone that a hacker can watch you from your security camera, the person takes action and they're safer for it. Like that's, that's the end goal of Simeus. It's just to make sure that as we go into the future, as we get all these cool smart devices, smart cars, all that fun stuff, you know, let's be safe while doing it. Let's keep ourselves, you know, keep ourselves safe. I think I think that I think that is a good message. Is that you know we you know if we're if we're going to be moving into the future, let's try and make sure that we're doing it safely, right? And that's I think what everyone can get behind. Well, thank you so so much for your time today, Neil. And this is this has been a really really like fascinating conversation. I'm gonna have to like, go and like look up uh, Pegasus after this chat and see what that's all about and oh my god that sounds it sounds wild but um i really appreciate your time today and um hopefully we'll be able to see you around in uh various events or uh 
other kind of volunteering opportunities. And hopefully people will come and say hi and say, you know, we, we heard about you on the Rainforest podcast. Definitely. Uh, thank you very much for the opportunity. I think, you know, it's good that you guys are given access to, you know, Canadian entrepreneurs, Calgary entrepreneurs, because, uh, you know, like, like this stuff helps. The information being gotten to everybody else, it helps a lot. So, yeah, I'll definitely be back and I'll keep volunteering. I mean, they gave me a very nice, comfy shirt, so I have to now. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I'll, I'll be out in the boat. I mean, hey, if you, if, you, if, you get, if you get some perks out of it, why not, right? So, well, th- well thank you again. And I guess that means we're just going to hand it back to you, Al. Take it away. If you haven't already, visit rainforestab.ca and sign the Rainforest Social Contract. Become part of the inclusive, silo-busting, sector-agnostic, all-industry, open-sourced, ego-shrinking, ecosystem-building, entrepreneur-focused, wide-open, social barrier-smashing community known as Rainforest Alberta. This episode is brought to you by Community Now Magazine. Engage, inspire, educate together. Music for the show was created by Tony Deldegan. Please be sure to share this episode with everyone you know. Also, don't forget to come by and say hi at the next Rainforest event. Let us know what you think of this podcast. If you're interested in being either a host, sponsor, or a guest of the show, send me an email at rainforestpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.